what I want to do this morning is, is uh, um, do one more, just, just one more sermon on grace. Is that okay? Uh, one, one more, just one more. Last sermon on grace I'll ever preach until uh, we get to it again. And we'll start our, our series on, uh, on Hebrews next, next week, um, which will probably take us a couple months at least. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll deal with the book of Hebrews. And uh, this morning, uh, there's one more thing about grace I want to get at. And I want to do it by turning to Luke chapter 18. We'll read verses 9 through 14. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. This is a really powerful, powerful parable. Luke says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness. That's the key phrase there. They were confident of their own righteousness. They weren't bragging about it. They weren't overly prideful, whatever. They were just confident. They were self-assured. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Well, that's an interesting topic of prayer. What should we pray about? Me. Prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like these other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Hmm? Or even like this tax collector over here. Man, am I glad I'm not like him. Rather, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. Okay, He wouldn't go into the temple. He felt unworthy. He would not even look up to heaven. Come on, show a little bit of effort. But he wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he smote his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I know who I am. I know what I'm about, and I'm a sinner. I can't confess to tithing. I can't confess to praying three times a day. I'm just like other men. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. I tell you, Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. The word there in Greek, dikaiosune, means to be made righteous. He was righteous before God, not the Pharisee. The tax collector went home righteous before God. Why? Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, let your word just land on us powerfully, Lord, like the song, Almighty God. Give it your energy. Give it, Lord God, your authority. Lord, help me to step out of the way and become as much as possible, Lord, invisible and a mere conduit through which the word of God comes and hits us boldly. Free your people, Lord. Bear kingdom fruit here. Convict us if we need convicting. Change us. And Lord, for those who are here this morning who don't know you as Lord and Savior, save them, Lord. Draw them, Lord. Bring them under the shelter of your gracious wing. In your name we pray. Amen. Let me give you a little background to the story here. Um, Pharisees and tax collectors. <clears throat> in the first century, in Jewish culture, were about as diametrically opposed as two groups could be. They were at opposite ends of the social spectrum. Pharisees were the most respected people there were. They were like pastors used to be about a century ago. 
uh, very well esteemed. Everyone looked up to them. They were the ones who did it right. They were the religious specialist. They were the ones who honored God the most, it was believed. We sometimes have a stereotype of Pharisees, coming from the Gospels, that they were all just a bunch of pompous body parts. Uh, they're, they're, they're really bad. <laughs> Stuff shirts. Um, and, and you just sort of went around, walked kind of tightly, and you know, just were up on themselves. And there were some who were like that, but the majority of them were just sincere people who really were hyper-religious. They just liked to do it all right. They, that, that's what's, they were confident of their own righteousness. 613 laws in the Old Testament, and they kept every one. And then they added a couple just for good measure to be safe. Everyone loved the Pharisees. Very respected people. And the prayer that is prayed here in this parable is exactly the kind of prayer that a Pharisee would pray. Lord, I'm just thankful I'm not like these people. These evildoers, these adulterers. Man, Lord, I just, I'm so thankful. I think I'm not like this tax collector. Now, tax collectors, they were the scum of the earth in Jewish culture in the first century. Here's why. The Roman government was oppressing the Jewish people, had been for quite some time, several centuries. The Jews always wanted to be an independent nation. They detested, they despised the Romans because of the Roman government keeping them as servants. They were often arbitrarily persecuted. They hated the Roman government. And they hated everybody who didn't hate the Roman government. They especially hated anyone who sympathized with the Roman government. And the worst possible thing you could do would, 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 would be to work for the Roman government. Tax collectors worked for the Roman government. They collected taxes for Caesar. A good Orthodox Jew didn't even pay taxes to Caesar. This was a real big discussion. Jesus talks about it. You know, they try to trip him up. Well, should we pay taxes to Caesar? The idea there is this. Taxes are supposed to be used to support the temple. It's a religious thing, so should we be... That's where this whole tithing thing has come from. It was the Old Testament taxation. Should we, should we give our, our taxes to the temple, or should we let the Romans tax us? And a lot of good Orthodox Jews said, no, we should not be taxed by the Romans. We shouldn't pay. We should refuse to support the Roman government. That's making Caesar Lord instead of Yahweh. Well... The tax collectors didn't only pay taxes to the government, they collected the taxes that many Jews refused to pay. What made it even worse, if it could possibly get worse, was this. They were paid a real minimum salary by the Romans, but the way they would usually make their living was by getting tips. And by that I mean this. They would overcharge their customers for the taxes that were owed, and they could keep, the deal with the Roman government was, was that they could keep the extra. You rip off your own people and you get to... Now, not every tax collector did that. We don't know if this tax collector did that or not. But it shows you the kind of reputation that tax, collector had, tax collectors had in the first century. They were lower than the prostitutes. They were really down there. In that context, you can understand why this Pharisee would pray the prayer that he prayed. I don't think it's that outlandish. It's not exaggerating. This isn't a real pompous, legalistic person. He's just saying, God, I'm thankful that I know the right thing to do. I think I'm so thankful that I'm secure in my righteousness, that I go to the synagogue every day, that I pray three times a day, that I tie the tenth of all that I own, and I'm not like this low-life, scumbag, loser tax collector. Thank you, God. The tax collector, who is all of those things, isn't worthy to go in to the temple, and he knows it. 
In fact, he's so unworthy, he doesn't even look up. He's like, I can't even look up. Because he knows he does not have a leg to stand on. He knows he's got no right to talk to God. The all-holy God, and here he is, scumbag of the earth, and he won't even look up. But all he can do is say, man, either you have mercy on me or I am a goner. Have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. And Jesus says, and this, try to feel it, try to sense it, try to hear it like you would a first century Jew, whose whole understanding is the Pharisee, you're talking about the most respected person in our culture, the tax collector, you're talking about the greatest loser in our culture, and Jesus has the audacity to say, the tax collector went home righteous in God's eyes, and the Pharisee did not. That had to hit them like a ton of bricks right between the eyes. What Jesus is saying here is this. The rules that operate with regard to God's standard of righteousness, the rules that operate with regard to the kingdom of God, the thinking, the process, the philosophy that pertains of how God gets people righteous with himself is absolutely antithetical to what any human being would ever think of, has ever thought of, and ever will think of. In human terms, by human measurements, by human standards, by human criteria, the Pharisee did it all. And it was just sincerely thankful for it. The tax collector did none of it. But see, Jesus is saying this, that what counts in the kingdom of God is not the standard. It's not the measuring stick. It's not the measuring rod. It's not how well you measure up to someone else's standard or even your own standard. Though the things that you do are good, there's nothing wrong with going to the synagogue every day. There's nothing wrong with praying three times a day. Lord forbid. There's nothing wrong with, 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 with paying a, a tenth of all that you have to the temple. Jesus would be for all those things. What's wrong is being confident in your own righteousness because of those things. Feeling secure because of what you do. And therefore looking down at others who don't do what you do. I think if we're honest with it, we'll see that we, at times at least, and maybe habitually, are not so very different than the Pharisee. There's something in human nature, in, in the human mind, in the human heart, that seems to instinctively do this. We hit upon a standard of decency or a standard of theology or a standard of religiosity or whatever that we measure up to and we feel good about that and if we're ever feeling insecure, we just look to the standard and say, okay, at least I do this. I'm better than that person. At least I do this, and that person doesn't do it, and we feel good about that. And that's the very thing that Jesus is coming against. Is there anyone in this world that you think is less than you? Think about it. Those people that you saw on the beach, you know, they, man, the lowlifes, you know, the, the, those, those kind of people, you, you know, they don't, they, they're animals, you know, they, maybe don't even, but in your heart, it's like, are we not saying, thank God I'm not like that. Oh, maybe I'm not the classiest person in the world, but I got enough decency to know that you don't do that. I got enough know-how as a parent to know that you don't do that. These, these people over here. And there is in the church, and of all of us, if we're honest with it, a, a way, often a way, it's been there from the beginning, it characterizes church history, a way of gradating people, of measuring people, ourselves and other people. And we sometimes feel good about that. Because that is there. 
I thank God that I go to church and I'm not like those people who don't go to church. I thank God that I at least don't have that problem. I thank God that I know how to parent and my kids aren't all screwed up like, like that person. I thank God that I, I, I know how to use my money and I give to the church and that person doesn't. I thank God that I know how to read the Bible and I read it a lot and I pray a lot. I thank God that I'm not like those heathen people or those half-mediocre Christians who don't do those things. I thank God that I don't smoke. I thank God that I don't drink. I thank God, I thank God, on and on and on. And all the while... There's a measuring stick by which we're feeling okay about ourselves and looking down at somebody who doesn't measure up. For some people, it's a doctrine kind of a thing. A doctrine kind of thing. And this is their little shibboleth. They go around, they want to know, where do you stand on this? And, and this will make you okay or not. Do you know how to walk in prosperity? Do you know how to claim it? Do you know, you know, real Christians have arrived, you see. They know how, they, they, they live in riches and they live in health and they just have got it all together. And those other Christians, yeah, they're saved for sure, but... Boy, they just don't have it. They just don't cut the grade. They're just not with it. Or we, I thank God that I know how to baptize, right? And I get a little bit of life from that. I I feel secure because I know I've read the Bible. I've studied that thing. And anyone who really has read the Bible will agree with me. I do it the Bible way. And if you disagree, you must not believe in the Bible way. Or if some people have their particular little end time scheme, their little eschatology. You know, how things are going to be pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, a-trib, blah, 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 I don't know. And they, they, they quiz you on it. Well, what do you say on this? Are you really genuine or not? Genuine or not? Odd thing is, you can do this with grace. I thank God I know what grace is. <laughs> Those other silly Christians who just, they're into the rules and stuff. And sometimes what people mean by that is, I thank God that I know that God doesn't really care what I do. And they take pride in that. It's another, oddly enough, ironically enough, another form of Phariseeism. Or sometimes people, they've got a little lens that they're using and, and they want to see if you're really spiritual or not. And they're looking for some certain things here. Is this a spiritual church or not? can't tell you how many times I get asked this question. And it's not a bad question. The question isn't bad. What's sometimes behind the question can be bad. But they want to know, are you a spirit-filled church? And man, that's such a loaded question. No matter how you answer it, you, you lose. Yes, we are. Well, then you're prideful. No, we're not. Well, then you're dead. What's... Or they want to know, are you a, are, are you a, a spirit-filled preacher? Are you a spirit-filled preacher? It's like, yes, I am. As a matter of fact, I'm glad you asked. Watch. <laughs> I mean, it seems like the kind of thing where you just, you know, I would think you'd say, well, look at it. I, you know, I see God doing stuff. Praise God. God, God you know, changes lives. Why don't you come stick around and, and you decide that one. But see, sometimes what they're looking for is this. Sometimes. Not always. Sometimes. There, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thing here. They want to know if I'm okay. They want to know if the church is okay. And, and what they're looking for sometimes is, do you speak in tongues? Have you spoken in tongues? Because, see, if you've spoken in tongues, then you're filled with the Spirit. If you haven't, well, then there's something lacking. I mean, your life can be going apart, I assume, but, but if, you've, if you've spoken in tongues, then that means you're filled. And you could be saving people left and right, but if you haven't spoken in tongues, I guess that means you're not filled. There's a shibboleth there. There's a grid. Are you okay? And as a matter of fact, I speak in tongues. That's a gift that I've, I have. I, I pray with that quite a bit. I, I enjoy that. I believe in it. But I don't even want to answer them. I say, Yo, well, yes, I do. Because that feeds into this idea that that's okay. You can speak in tongues and be really dead as a preacher. You can speak in tongues and be really dead as a Christian. But if that's your measuring rod, I mean, a person can feel okay about, about that. I've arrived. I've, I've spoken in tongues. Or for some people, they, 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 they have a, a, other measuring rods, other criteria. Is this an anointed service? Is this an anointed church? Well, what they're looking for is what? Uh, how many people raise their hands when you worship? Uh, not enough. It must not be anointed. 
Uh, how many people, do they run the aisles? Uh, do, do, you, do you have that? Do you have people dancing in the aisles? You know, real churches, real hyped-up services where God's really moving. You're going to have people doing that kind of thing. And, and, and I want to know, people ask this kind of question, do you have people slaying the Spirit? Um, you know, is that something that uh, you have? Uh, you know, I want to know, is, is this a spiritual church? Because it just isn't a good service, folks, unless you have some people laying on the floor. <laughs> it's true. It's true that some people believe that. Or one, is, and one that's frequently out there is, is this. Uh, does your church practice holy laughter? Does your church practice holy laughter? Because you see, what God is doing today across the nations is he's getting people to laugh. Holy laughter, roaring with the joy of Jesus. And, and if you don't have that, then you're just not with it. And see, they, if you have that grid there, if you have that grid there, then God can be showing up in an incredible way. People can be getting saved. Lives can be getting changed. But because the people didn't laugh, you think God didn't show up. They didn't meet your criteria. You think there's something missing here. Or because enough people didn't raise their hands, something's wrong here. Or because no one ran the aisle. Or because there wasn't a prophecy. Or because no one spoke in tongues or whatever. They didn't match up to your standard and you just missed what God did because you were looking for God in your little pigeonhole. And then what happens is you get this stuff, you get the doctrine, you get the behavior. And you feel secure because you've got it. I got this. As long as I got this, and I, it must have been a good church because they laughed. It must have been a good service. I must be spiritual because I, I spoke in tongues. I must be spiritual because I read the Bible. I must be spiritual because I do this. And you're finding your security in that. Here's the bottom line. There is nothing of anything I just said that was wrong. There is nothing. There's no problems with getting holy laughter from God. I've seen that happen in a genuine way. If it's done in a biblical way, if it's not detracting from what's supposed to be happening, then let it happen. If it's happening in house churches, whatever, let the power of God fall. I, I've seen that happen in a wonderful way. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with, with uh, getting excited about the Lord and dancing before the Lord. That's a biblical thing. Raising your hands before God, that's a very biblical thing. Speaking in tongues, if it's done in a biblical way, is a very proper thing. That's a good thing. I encourage it. Prophecy, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, living a holy life, reading the Bible, paying tithes, all of that. If God leads you to do it, that's a great thing. Go with it. Grow with it. Explode with it. But don't get life from it. Do not get life from it. Do not rest your confidence in that. I must be okay with God because I got this going on. I got this, and I got this. It's all I need. And this. My holy water and my Bible, that's all. And I need a stool. I need that. Okay, some of you saw the movie, some of you didn't. That's okay. Oh, okay, see, because here's the point that Jesus is getting at. There's nothing wrong with anything the Pharisee did. Do it. That's godly stuff. Mature in it. That's godly stuff. But when you begin to get life from it, when you begin to rest in it, when that becomes a source of your identity, I feel good about myself because I do this, and most people don't, you know? And I, I, and I just stand out. When, the, when that starts to happen, when it becomes a source of life to us, when it becomes a source of our joy, a source of our self-esteem, we just crossed a very, very bad line. And what Jesus is saying is you're better off failing at the stuff you're trying to be good at and being like a tax collector who just cries out for the mercy of God than you are getting security, getting life, getting value from the doctrines and the behavior that you think are making you okay. Because in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, there's only one thing, only one thing that makes you okay. There's only one thing that is a proper source of self-esteem. There's only one thing that is a proper source of 
joy in our life, in the innermost part of our being. There's only one thing that is a proper person to look at and to say, because of this, I'm okay. Because of this, I'm saved. Because of this, I know that that if I die on the way home, I'm going to heaven. And that one thing, that one person is the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Amen. We sang the song here, our life is in you, Lord. Our hope is in you, Lord. Our joy is in you, Lord. And our only righteousness that we're ever going to have, we either have it by God's grace because of what Jesus did for us, or you don't have it. And you can jump through all the hoops you want to in the world. You can go through all the tricks, do all the things, believe all the right doctrines. But if Jesus Christ is not there, if you're not clinging to the cross and saying, God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner, then you've missed the boat. In God's kingdom, it's absolutely antithetical to the way we normally think about things. The standard of gradation is simply this, is the blood of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ present in your life. That's what grace is all about. And you start adding stuff to that grace, and you've just taken away grace. Here's what happens when, when we get off track, and we begin to find some security. And I want us to think, I want us to see how subtle this is. We all do it to some degree. I'm okay because... Oh, at least I got my prayer stuff done. That's what makes me okay. We, we, all, we all do that to some degree. Now, here's what happens when we do it. First of all, when you get a congregation of people who buy into something like this, you're going to get a congregation that is involved in some heavy manipulation. Because I believe that there's a standard that makes you okay. There's a criteria here. I got my five points that you got to meet. Real Christians are this. True Christians are this. Fired up Christians are this way. Bam, bam, bam. I got a lot of my little niche... My, my, my little niches there, my measuring rod there, then I will try to get you to measure up to that. And everyone who believes that will try to get you to laugh up to that. If really, you know, if what God's doing today is getting people to laugh, then I, I'm going to have to try to get you to laugh. And what starts as a genuine thing, you know, I know some people who were up at this uh, Toronto church when this thing first broke out, this was a revival, for those of you who don't know, a revival broke out about two years ago or three years ago, I don't know, and it involved a lot of laughter. People just began to laugh all over the place, roaring laughter. The joy of God just fell on the place. And I know some people who were there. One guy's this professor guy who's this really, uh, you wouldn't expect this, but he told me that he went to the service and this joy just came over him and he started laughing to the point of tears. It was a genuine thing. It was a godly thing. It was a good thing. And it was for Toronto. But then what happens is, and this is the American way, we try to franchise it. Well, let's take this show on the road. If it's good there, it can be better down there. And so we take this out, and we, and we try to make this a criteria. And I've seen this thing, this Toronto blessing, which is good in and of itself. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But when it doesn't come as a natural thing, when it's not a spirit-led thing, but rather now it's a hoop i got to jump through, a criteria i got to meet, now it becomes manipulative. Now it becomes contriving. Now it becomes divisive. I've seen churches split and torn apart because of this thing. One preacher I knew, he thought, he came down there and he said, you know, we're, we're going to have a laughing revival. Well, not very many people laugh. So he started to try to shame people into laughing, which is a little bizarre when you think about it. And then he said, well, we need to have services every night of the week because in Toronto they have services every night of the week and maybe if we have services every night of the week we'll be as spiritual as they are and we'll laugh. But see, they didn't have every night of the week until he started laughing and then he said, why not do this every night? So he started doing it every night because it was already there. It's putting the cart before the horse. You start getting the joy of God, and you might start having services every night. But I guarantee you that if you don't have the joy of the Lord, having services every night of the week isn't going to get it. 
The thing goes over and over again when you try to franchise. I knew a guy who got a healing ministry. God, for one month of his ministry, was, was just healing through him. Everyone he prayed for got healed. And then he gave up his church and took it on the road. You know what? The gift dried up. And now he's got to make it happen. His, life, his livelihood depends on him being a healer. And so he'd go into these congregations. I was in a, uh, several meetings where he did this. He just, he, we would manipulate crowds into people, getting people to think that they were getting healed. You take something that's really true of God, something that's genuine, something that's good, you make it into an ought, you make it into you, you should do, make it into a rule, make it into a law, make it into a criteria, and you're going to be manipulating people all over the place to try to get them to have it, what God wants them to have for free. Same thing with speaking in tongues. If that's, you know, I've been in churches where there's two classes of people, those who do and those who don't do. And those who do speak in tongues, and this is the criteria, they think they've really arrived, and so they've quit growing. And they're prideful. And those who don't, Though they may be on fire for God, they feel shamed. And now there's pressure on them to try to speak in tongues. Instead of being a, a nice gift of God that's there, there's pressure put on them. Why are you holding on to God? Why don't you just let go? And then the people try to grab their job, prayer services, and, and try to you know, say, hold on, loosen up, come on, and say, Shandala Honda, come see my maroon bow tie, ride my economy Yamaha, or whatever, and, and trying to get them to speak in tongues. And you take something that's a real beautiful, good, genuine gift of God and you turn it into this, this little psychological manipulation stuff. One thing that happens when we start trying to live other people's measuring rods is things get very manipulative and they get very tiring. Some of you know what I'm talking about firsthand. You're jumping through hoops because now you're not doing it on a basis of a natural spiritual energy. You're doing it on a natural energy that you have, on a carnal energy that you have, trying to measure up to someone's criteria. A second thing that happens is that we get involved in idolatry. Idolatry, an idol, is anything that plays a role in our life that God wants to play. God wants to be the, the ultimate source of our worth and self-esteem, our identity. Anything in our life that plays that role is taking his place, and it's called an idol. An idol can be your car, it can be your stunningly good looks, it can be your money, it can be your job, it can be your kids, it can be your religion. It can be your going to church every week. It can be how much you pray more than other people. It can be how many Bible verses you memorize. It can be how much money you give because you're feeding off of it. That's what's called an idol. And the worst thing about idols is that they rob God of glory, and God does not want to be robbed of glory. The truth of the matter is, is that we are all Pharisees who simply can pray, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And that, therefore, all that we are never shall be, our worth, our value, our esteem, our salvation, the fact that we are going to heaven and not hell, God gets the glory for that. He deserves the glory for that. 100% from beginning to end, that is about God and his love and his passion and his grace. But when I'm feeling secure about myself because of what I do, I'm not feeling secure because of what he did. That's robbing him of glory. God wants us to be rejoicing what he has done for us and have a walking with a heart of gratitude rather than trying to rejoice in what we do for ourselves and feel secure about the whole thing. We get involved in idolatry. When we get involved in idolatry, a third thing happens. Our view of God gets jaded. Our view of God gets jaded. Because here's what happens. God, the true God, is a God of unconditional love. He comes down to earth. He dies for us. He pays for all our sin. He takes on him. He takes on himself our sin that we could take on his righteousness. He's a God who wants to love us for free. But when you start getting a criteria, a measuring rod that you got to kind of see, am I, am, I, you know, am I meeting up to snuff here? Then God becomes the one who holds the ruler. God becomes the, the master of the pony show and is always telling us to jump through the, the hoop. If that analogy works for you, I don't know. 
God becomes, instead of being a passionate lover, he becomes a, a sort of an accountant, a record keeper, who's up there meticulously checking it off. Are you measuring up to my standards? Are you doing it right? And now God, instead of being this God that you just want to be around and love with all your heart, becomes a being who no one would really want to be around if this God was incarnated, a record keeper. Well, I, how are you doing today? Are you measuring? He becomes an employer. And our job is to just, you know, to keep the wages coming. Our picture of God gets utterly distorted. The church I got saved in, their source of life, one of their sources of life, one of several sources of life that they had, one of their idols was how they baptized. You see, they knew the Bible better than anyone else. They baptized right. No one else did baptize right. And unless you were baptized right, you weren't saved. Okay, so you really had to be baptized by them with the right words said over you for you to be saved. Now, what? that's an idol. That's getting life from something other than Jesus Christ. And there's churches all around who, who teach this. Think about this. What view of God does that presuppose? Here is God. Sends Jesus Christ down to earth to die for you. He gives us all, becomes a human being, dies, takes hell upon himself, takes sin upon himself for you because he loves you. He's passionately in love with you. He gave all for you. You love him. You recognize this. You believe this. You give your all for him. You love him. All of your life, you, you live in relationship with him. You die. You go to the judgment seat, and God says, well, you know, Mary, I love you, and, I, 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 you, know, and you love me, and we've, I died for you, and you gave your life for me. But you see, there's this technicality here. You know, it's just, the right words weren't said or baptized. Hasta la vista, baby. And she goes, I didn't know. Well, you should have. Uh, what kind of God is this? The God who creates this universe throws people to eternal hell on a technicality. All of a sudden, instead of this kind of deity that we find in the person of Jesus Christ loving these outcast sinners, this is a God who is just is so rule-orientated, he'll punish someone eternally for not getting it right. Do you see how the picture of God gets jaded there? And that affects everything in your life. When you, when you have a criteria that you're trying to measure up to, your view of God will go down to the degree that your effort to try to measure up goes up. Your view of God changes, and that changes. This is the fourth point, your view of yourself. Because now I, instead of being a person who gets life and fullness of worth and infinite value for free, I'm now a person who's got to achieve it every single day of my life by measuring up to these, this, this set of standards. I'm no longer a being who's got intrinsic worth who's got it on the inside because of what God thinks about me and what God did for me, no longer am I that. Now I'm a person whose entire worth is invested in this yardstick that I have to measure up to. And i got to earn it day after day after day after day. That's why this kind of religion is so tiring. You never can coast. It's never for free. You're always paying through your teeth to stay equal with it. Your view of yourself changes. Instead of living out of an abundance of joy, of the love, of grace, of God that you have for free, you're constantly trying to feed yourself, constantly trying to get it more and more and more. This is why Paul, in Galatians chapter 5, read it. He says this, For freedom Christ set you free. Now what a weird statement. Why did Christ set you free? Well, one reason is so you'd be free. For freedom, Christ set you free. And then he says, verse 2, Stand fast, freedom, for which Christ set you free. Plant your feet on this. Get rooted in this. Do not be moved by this. Don't budge. 
You are free in Christ Jesus. Your love for free. Your worth is for free. Your salvation is for free. Your value is for free. Your destiny is for free. Do not let anybody ruin that whole thing by starting to put little yokes on you, little stuff on you, as a way of trying to improve who you are. In the case of the Galatians, it was circumcision. Real religious people are circumcised. They, sit with, they go with that Old Testament rule. you got to get circumcised. If you really want to be right with God, if you really want God to like you, you got to be circumcised. Paul's not against circumcision. It's fine. Great. Do it. What a joy ride. Fine. But don't get life from it. Don't think that your value with God just went up because of it. He says this in Colossians chapter 2. Powerful verse. Colossians chapter 2. I'm almost ready to close here. Colossians chapter 2 says this. Jesus Christ died for us on the cross, verse 14. When he died for us on the cross, he took everything that was written against us, he nailed it to the cross, and he made an open mockery of Satan. And then he says in verse 16, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you as to what day you worship on, what you eat, what you drink, what festivals you keep or don't keep. Don't let anyone judge you according to their little standards, whether you laugh in the spirit or not, whether you dance in the spirit or not, whether you raise your hands or not, or whatever. Don't come under that bondage. Not that the stuff is bad in and of itself. But when you come under that bondage, even a little, little, little bit, your view of God's going to start to get altered. Your view of yourself's going to get altered. And your relationship with Jesus Christ, which used to be so free, so full of passion, so full of joy, just there, it was natural, now it becomes a burden, becomes a yoke, it becomes a duty, becomes an obligation, and nothing but that. Stand fast in the freedom for which Christ set you free. And then when your view of yourself changes, your view of other people change. Because now you got the measuring stick. And you measure up. But what about that person there, and that person there, and that person there? And all of a sudden, you're wearing these spectacles by which you see everybody. Look like Baptists are supposed to look. Huh? And here's the irony. I've seen, I see this at Bethel sometimes. You get somebody coming in, and they come from a nice, straight-laced background. They look the part. Everything's just looking really good. And they get life from that. They feel really secure because they look the part, talk the part, walk the part, da-da-da-da. And look over at some other kid who's got an alternative look. Maybe they got no hair on the side and spiked hair in the middle and purple and orange and green, and they got earrings where you didn't think earrings could possibly go. And they look over at that kind of distance, and they thank God that they're not like that person. I mean, maybe that person's saved, but it's, it's a stretch for sure. And they're not as saved as I am. And see, once again, you wear those kind of spectacles, and now it may be, and sometimes I've seen it, where that person there has a, the, the, the spiked hair guy or the spiked hair gal has got a spirituality that would put to shame this other person, but this person won't learn from that or grow from that because they're wearing their spectacles. Do you meet my shibboleth? Do you meet my standard? Do you meet my criteria? Do you fit into my pigeonhole? And if you don't, well, then you're just down there a notch. The way we start, we start judging other people, we do it unconsciously. Well, a real Christian wouldn't have that smell of alcohol in their breath when they came to church here and and instead of seeing people in terms of their needs, in terms of how God sees them, we see them in terms of our criteria and it begins to split apart the body of Christ. As the worship team comes up here, let me just say this. We are all, once again, we are all tax collectors. Some of us have pristine, pure pasts. Some of us have pasts that would make a truck driver blush. Some of us come from great backgrounds. Some of us come from hellish backgrounds. Some of us have been relatively pain-free in our life. Some of us have had painful lives. Some of us right now are at one stage in our growth. Others of us have at a different stage in our growth. But we are all, when all is said and done, peel away the onions of our lives, the end of our ra- how we were raised, all, peel away the layers of that stuff, 
And when you get to the core, what's got to be there is the heart of the tax collector who said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Growth is good. Acquiring discipline in your life is good. Going to church is good. Letting God lead you into how much you give to the church is good. Reading the Bible, growing in that, giving up things as God convicts you of them, that's good stuff. It will happen as you grow in the Lord. But doing those things because someone is motivating you from the outside to do it will never produce growth. If the growth is there, that will be there too. But trying to measure up to someone's standard to get that there is never going to produce growth. We are all, just this is Sinners Anonymous, folks. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we are saved by grace. And our only hope, and this is what grows us, our only hope is knowing over and over again and praying over and over again that our only hope is Jesus Christ. And our only desire is Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>